the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz, broadcasting on WBSM as well as on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. So if you are listening to the radio and you want to see what's going on in the Spooky studio, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com and click on the Spooky TV icon up in the upper left-hand corner. That'll take you into where our chat room is, and you'll see our ugly mugs right there on the camera. And if you have never heard the program before... We talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night. We're usually on from 10 to midnight, but tonight we're on for a special 5 p.m. start time because we'll be followed at 6.30 by the Bruins and Montreal Canadiens. And then uh, after that game will be the Red Sox and the Anaheim, Los Angeles, Angels of Anaheim, I believe is what they're going by these days. So uh, a full slate of sports stuff, but before that we're going to talk about the Shroud of Turin with our guests tonight, Moniz. Yes. I want to ask you something. This is something I was going to say to talk about a little bit later on in the show, but why don't we do it uh, tonight, while, you know, right now, while we're uh, <laughs> waiting for Matt to work things out there. Have you ever heard of Captain Midnight, the pirate? Captain Midnight, the pirate. This is... This is no, uh, I can't say that I, it rings that much of a bell. Well, we are approaching the 25th anniversary of Captain Midnight, and I'm going to uh, explain it to everybody because I, I don't know all the ins and outs of how cable television and the satellite relays work and everything, uh, but basically what happened is uh, back in 1987, it was actually uh, April 20th, I'm sorry, April 27th, 1986, uh, a guy named John McDougal, uh, it was a 25-year-old uh, satellite dish salesman out of Florida, and his job was to run the satellites for HBO. You know, I guess they use different people around the world to, to move the satellites and do everything that they had to do, configure everything that they had to do. So on the morning of April 27, 1986, at 12.32 a.m., John McDougall uh, was overseeing the uplink of the movie Pee-wee's Big Adventure as part of the evening's uh -huh. programming. End of the shift, he swung the dish back into its storage position, uh, and then... In a protest uh, against the introduction of high fees and scrambling equipment, he transmitted a signal onto the satellite, which overrode HBO's airing of The Falcon and the Snowman for four and a half minutes. It was a text message over color bars, and all HBO subscribers across the Eastern Time Zone read the words, Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. Twelve ninety-five a month? No way. Showtime movie channel beware. So he was protesting the 12.95 fee that they were charging for satellite dish users to access HBO. Uh, amazing. Now I would gladly pay 12.95 a month for <laughs> HBO these days. Um, but anyway, that was April 27th, 1986. So we're coming up on the 25th anniversary of it this week. So I contacted Captain Midnight, John McDougal, to see if he wanted to come on with us. And uh, he he said that he didn't want to join us. That he's kind of um, retired uh, from the from the public eye, uh, but he did give me an email that I could read. Uh, his jamming of HBO signal was something that he did as a wake-up call regarding unfair pricing and, quote, restrictive access policies of HBO and its parent company, Time Warner Incorporated, and other cable TV and media companies that were prevalent at the time. That was 25 years ago, and while he has few regrets and in many ways is proud of his motives, it was 25 years ago, and he's not one to wax on nostalgically, nor try to be a, a braggart about things long since forgotten by most. When uh, he sees others acting this way, it makes him wince, and he's reminded of the many reasons that he's not like that. So there you go, a statement from Captain Midnight on the 25th anniversary of one of the great piracy uh, of the technological age. And it's interesting, about a year later, some kids did a similar pirate act. Uh, they law, uh, went into a national broadcast of a, of a major superstation uh, with uh, a couple of minutes' worth of footage of one of them wearing a Max Headroom mask, standing in front of a background and, and talking in a very high-pitched voice, and the audio is very uh, hard to make out. But you can check it out if you go to YouTube and look up you know, Max Headroom piracy. 
you'll be able to check it out. And there's also reports on Captain Midnight there as well from the original, you know, 1986 NBC broadcast uh, of them reporting on the Captain Midnight issue. Now, you might be wondering uh, what we would be doing talking about the Shard of Turn if we are a paranormal show. But uh, there's a lot of strange, almost supernatural things that have been attributed to the Shroud. So we're going to talk about all that and more with our guests. Uh, Nigel Kerner is an author and freelance journalist born in Sri Lanka. He is, his mother is from a British planting family and his father an officer in the British Royal Navy Fleet Arm. Uh, this international family base provided him with a background for an obsessive and serious interest in international human affairs and how they interface with science, religion, and philosophy. Uh, his first book was The Song of the Greys, and his last, uh, latest book is Grey Aliens and the Harvesting of the Souls, which we had him on to talk about a few months ago here on the show. Uh, we welcome him. Uh, good evening, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us, although it took a few minutes. Hello, this is Nigel Kerman here. Hi, Nigel. Greetings, Hi, Andrew Silverman here. Hello, Dr. Silverman. All right, so, uh, <laughs> it's, despite all the technical difficulties here, we are actually here to talk about basically uh, uh, recording technology from the time of Jesus, basically, uh, the Shroud of Turin, which we believe has his, uh, his image on it. Uh, Dr. Silverman, what can you tell us about the Shroud of Turin? Well, I mean, for those uh, listeners who aren't too familiar with it, it's a 14-foot-long piece of cloth, which is, which is kept in, in Turin, Italy, um, which has the, the image on it of a, of a man. Now, I, I just want to say something. Of course, um, it's not actually thought to be a, a technological phenomenon as such, but um, if, you, if, you look at the, if you look at the image on the cloth, you can see there's three different types of thing. One is there's burn marks there, and the other is there's things that look like bloodstains, which have been shown to actually be bloodstains, human blood, and the third thing is there's what looks at first sight appears to be the faint image of the front and back of a man on the cloth. Now, for, for many centuries, this was thought to just be that, a faint image, until the advent of the photographic era, when uh, somebody took a picture of it in 1898, and the story goes he nearly dropped his photographic plate in shock when he saw the negative, because the negative of the shroud is a positive. In other words, the shroud image itself is a photographic negative. Now, of course, I have to just quickly get what, something out of the way um, before I talk in more depth about the shroud, and that is the, the carbon dating. Because a lot of people will think that uh, the evidence from the carbon dating report back in the 80s said that it was actually medieval. But there are quite a few problems with that. One is that they didn't actually follow the protocol that had been prearranged. They were supposed to take several samples from different parts of the cloth. They only took all, that all three samples were from one small seven-centimeter strip in the corner of the cloth, which was known to be the most contaminated part. And if you look at the report in Nature, the scientific report, you can see that there was a lot of variation between the results from between the, between the different labs, even within that small area. Even such that you would say, the, looking at their own statistics, that the chance of it happening by chance, that you get this much variation, is enough to make it appear that they were actually different samples, that they were not from the same thing. And in fact, uh, a few years back, there was a couple in the States who did some research based on uh, observation that they made, that if they looked at a bit of the shroud near to the, where the sample was taken, it looked like they were actually looking at two different cloths that had been woven together. Now, when they made this public, one of the people who was on the original research project, who was a chemist from Los Alamos Laboratory, was quite annoyed by this, being a scientist. He said that, you know, this, the science says that it's medieval. You just have to accept it's medieval. Live with it. And he said, I'm going to prove these people wrong in five minutes. So he did the experiments to look into the, whether it could, they, it could have been a reweave, and he actually admitted straight away, look, to put my cards on the table, I set out to prove them wrong. I've proved them right. This is, a, this is not representative of the rest of the cloth. We can see that something has been added to this cloth. Now, this doesn't in any way imply that there was any foul play by the scientists involved in the carbon dating. They may well have accurately dated the samples they were given, and people who, get, who decided where to take the samples from may have thought this was a representative part of the shroud. But what, one thing you can criticize them for is they didn't follow the protocols. And 
it may well have been a reweave, but they and they missed it. Now to get back to the image, mm-hmm. the, as I was saying, it's a photographic negative. It's only on the surface fibrils of the cloth, the outermost fibrils, that's less than a human hair's thickness, the image, so thin that you can actually scrape it off with a razor blade, the, the fibrils that carry the, the image. But there's no paint or pigment on there. If there was, it would have soaked through, matted the fibrils together and so on. But you can see when you study it chemically, there's a chemical change in the surface of the cloth one that you can replicate on a small microscopic scale if you use ultraviolet laser. But the thing is, the, hmm. the cloth actually has distance-coded information in it, which was found by scientists using research that was originally developed for the NASA space program. If you put a, an ordinary photograph in this thing called an image intensifier, you get a random set of peaks and troughs. Put a picture of the shroud in it, however, and it comes out in three-dimensional relief at you, and you actually see the man sort of standing in front of you in three-dimensional relief, which is unique amongst all photographs. Uh, now, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So the the thing is that how do we how do we account for how this happened? Uh, the point about it having distance-coded information would imply, and that the image could have formed in a similar way to. Uh, uh, laser light, if you like. A lot of the scientists who have studied it have said that the image may have been formed by a short, intense burst of radiant energy that actually would have come from the body of the man that the cloth wrapped. Okay? Now, it was, uh, we know it was a dead body, and we know that because, the, as I said, the stains on there are, are actual human blood, and they can be shown by forensic pathologists to have actually been the, um, to have come from post-mortem blood that, that actually after after death now the the point is the question is who is this who is this man that actually left this image and what does that what are the implications for how this works and how to how to understand this phenomenon now the it's an image of a of a man who in, in his in his 30s um just under six foot tall with a, he has long hair, he has a beard. He is a man who's been tortured, cruelly tortured. He was whipped so that there are uh, over 120 breaks in his skin. And if you, if you look at these marks, each of them has blood stains associated with them, which using ultraviolet fluorescent, you can see what we call the serum that has separated out from it. And they fit exactly with the, the shapes. The marks fit with the shapes of the, what archaeologists know as the Roman flagrum, which is a whip that they used to torture people with. And also, but uniquely, in this particular occasion, there is marks on the head consistent with a set of sharp objects, like a cap of thorns that has been placed upon his, upon his head, and blood coming down from that, issuing from that. And this is both venous and arterial blood, both fitting with the anatomy that we know about the scalp. And he'd been crucified. He'd had nails pierced through his ankles and his and his wrists, interestingly. Medieval art always shows it through the hands, but we know now it would have had to have been the wrists. And when you do pierce the wrist, you're going to go through something called the median nerve. It would be agonizingly painful, and what would happen is that there would be, uh, stimulating that nerve would make the thumb draw in upon the palm, and actually that's what you see on the shroud image, that his thumb is tucked in behind the palm. I mean, I could go on for hours just about the forensics, of the of the shroud but the question is is it just coincidence that this unique event in human history at least as far as we know happened with what seems to be the historical character who has made the most impact on human history of perhaps of anyone who who has lived and is that a clue to how the image formed now um when i went to this conference last year in in frascati and gave a presentation that was the subject of of my talk was if, for the sake of argument, we consider this possibility, which many scientists do can believe, that the image was formed by a short, intense burst of radiant energy from the dead body of this man, how does that happen? How does the corpse shine brighter than the sun? And there were actually some ideas that Nigel put to me many years ago about the connection between mind and matter that I found very inspiring, and I brought to bear on this in helping me to, to think about how this process might have worked. He actually suggested that, that ma- rather than the mind being a product of the body or the brain, that actually it's the other way around, that the whole physical universe, physical existence, might itself be a product of the mind. 
and not in the sense that we're imagining it or it's an illusion or any of that. As he pointed out, you only you can believe it's an illusion until you stub your toe and then you're reminded it's not an illusion. <laughs> it's not that it's an illusion, but that there's one thing that we can we know in our experience that can cause something without itself being caused by anything. It's what we call free will. Free will is what philosophers call a, a primary cause. It's primary causation, and what could have caused the universe to happen? out of nothingness, when there were no things, no force to make it happen. Well, perhaps it was free choice. Perhaps it was a free choice that took us from that singularity and the Big Bang where everything was all together. Perhaps we were all sentient being was all together there and made separation happen. After all, if you think about it, space and time are just different words that explain separation. You can't have space and time without separation. And I would argue you can't have separation without space and time. Now, Perhaps that set in motion what scientists know as the second law of thermodynamics, the entropic drift. It was the boundary condition, they call it, that everything came from an initial state of order and was thrown apart into separation. Now, if you look at this character, Yeshua ben Yosef, that's uh, Jesus, mm -hmm. that's what he would have been known as at the time, everything he taught was based on the principle of love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, fundamentally, we're all one, and we all came from a singularity altogether. And through coming into separation, we took on restriction and limitation and enforcement, materiality and atoms, so we have physical bodies and are prone to suffering and so on. Well, the antidote to that, the only way of going against the second law of thermodynamics, which incidentally affects all physical things, but what if the mind is not physical? What if the mind has free will and so can go in a counter-direction? It has the antidote through the recipe that he showed in which he said that all human beings could emulate, that all human beings were capable of achieving what he achieved. He said, is it not written in the law, in your law, you are gods? So he was saying that every single human being has the same capacity as he had to achieve limitless possibilities, and that perhaps in so doing, if you do that, you begin to unravel the tension of space that makes atoms solid, and then perhaps they begin to shine. Just like at the Big Bang, initially there was nothing, then there was light, what the cosmologists call the photon-dominated era of the universe, and then there was matter, which is a more dense, compressed form of energy, if you like. Maybe you start to un unwind and relax the atoms, and they begin to shine, and followed to its full conclusion, that might produce something like the, the image on the shroud and maybe it's sort of quite topical that this is Easter at the moment a lot, a lot of scientists who have studied the shroud whether starting out as skeptics and I should say that I come at this myself from a, coming from a Jewish background so I've got no religious axes to grind here a lot of the scientists actually think this could actually be physical evidence an actual photograph on the cloth of a moment of resurrection itself well, it it seems like uh, we we kind of went really wide scale with uh, <laughs> with that answer, and uh, I do think uh, Dr. Silverman that uh, we owe you a prize for the longest answer to a question. But uh, <laughs> one of the one of the the main questions about this is if if this energy was coming from whoever was wrapped in the shroud, if it was some sort of brilliant burst uh, that caused this imprint, what is it about the physical characteristics? of that imprint that make us believe that that could have been Jesus. Aside from the wounds, obviously the wounds are indicative of, of the uh, the punishment that Jesus endured, but what about the features? What about the physical features? Are those well, consistent with who we would have thought Jesus would have been? Well, yes, yeah, so it's a Semitic-looking man who had been, had been crucified, who hadn't had his legs broken, which was unusual, who had had a cap of thorns placed on his head and who had been pierced in the side. And, but more, in, there's another interesting fact that, that I, um, I realized through something that, that, um, I read recently, that actually throughout the time of the, of the Roman occupation of, of Judea, they, they were torturing people and, and killing them with this practice of crucifixion. But there was only one period, which is between 6 and 66 AD, that there was a, a, a Jewish leader, who had some kind of power, some kind of sway in the, in the area, 
And although he wasn't able to stop all these crucifixions happening, he, he managed to say to the Romans and get them to agree that at least the Jews who were being killed in that way could be buried according to traditional religious Jewish burial practices, mm-hmm. which, as you may know, the, the, what that is is that people have to be buried very quickly once they're dead with everything, all their lifeblood, as it's, as it's known, that, that, to, that has been shed during death has to be buried with them and it has to be done quickly. Now, at all other times when the Romans were crucifying people there, they used to prefer to leave them out for the birds, if you like, to rot and, and be eaten by, by the wild creatures as a, as a sign of deterrence, if you like, mm-hmm. to say this is what happens if you challenge Roman rule. And in, but we know that, that if that's the case, that this would have been between 6 and 66 AD, we know that uh, looking at the pollen on the cloth, we can date it, we can place it to have been in Jerusalem, and we can say that it was out in the open air in around the time of March and April, which is when the the flowers that left the the pollen in the cloth that's the time that that they actually pollinate and also that this is consistent with first century cloth according to the herringbone weave pattern, and that the if you look at the cloth it it's it's consistent with jewish kashrut kosher practice in that it's, it doesn't contain certain mixtures of cloth, which were very common around uh, around that time. But but this one doesn't have it, in as much as it, it doesn't have mixtures of, of as, as I remember, it's linen and, and wool are not meant to be combined, and and they're not in this. So, and even the, the stitching pattern is consistent with other cloths that have been found in around into the first from that have been dated from the first century in in Masada. So. I mean, it, you know, you, no one can know anything 100% for, for sure, but one uh, archaeologist commented, if, if this had been anyone other than, than Jesus, there's so much evidence that it would have been accepted unanimously that it, that it points to, to it. But because it is, we're, because the evidence suggests that it's Jesus, that's such a big deal, that's such a controversial thing that people take a lot more convincing, and that's, quite reasonable but i think the evidence is there to com- well to convince a lot of people anyway and do you think the facial features would be indicative of what someone from the middle east would look like at the time i mean looking at the shroud itself i mean in one way i think it looks very uh, eurocentric and then when i look at it a different way i say well i can definitely see the the middle eastern aspects of the facial features well i mean yes he he does it does look semitic um if you if you look at if you look at the face um, it's consistent with him being, with him having been Middle Eastern. Bear in mind, you're talking Middle Eastern in that time period. People are making the assumption that he's supposed to look like what Middle Easterners look like now. You have to take into account 2,000 years of interbreeding from all different types of nations and uh, genotypes, mm-hmm. which now will change what people look like today versus what they looked like then. And it doesn't take it doesn't take very many generations to change facial features and, and physical appearance. I know that because I'm way better looking than my primary parents. example. Look at the Native Americans that we have here. They look very very different from when they originally mm-hmm. looked like when Europeans settled. Now, Nigel, how did you get involved in in researching the shroud in order to introduce it to uh, Andrew in the first place? Yeah, well, I was I, I uh, uh, yonks ago, years ago. Um, I was rather interested in in unusual phenomena. And, uh, you know, there was this business about this kerchief where uh, Christ's face was supposed to have um, 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 appeared miraculously, uh, was wiped uh, on the way to the cross by something, by some individual, and, and uh, an actual image of his face was supposed to have um, registered on this particular thing. It turned out to be a fake. And I, I and, you know, and <laughs> the whole history, at least uh, from the Roman Catholic point of view, and somebody splashed some water on me and told me as a child that I was a Catholic, even though I really never followed it uh, uh, ever in any kind of um, uh, rigor since. Mm-hmm. I was quite interested in the, f- the fraudulent way in which the Roman Catholic Church used to whip up its, its, its um, uh, in history, whip up its congregation, shall we say, uh, to follow in faith, and, and you know, the old business about indulgences and all that kind of business. It was, it was really something that did, didn't ring true, and I wanted to know what on earth was this business of this piece of cloth, 
this one piece of cloth everyone was talking about was it going to go the way of this kerchief and was it going to go, go the way of the, the true cross uh, from, from which, you know, if you put the, the, the numbers of, of pieces of the true uh, cross crossed together, you probably get uh, a forest, you know. And, and so um, as I looked into this particular thing, I began to see that there was something quite different about this, that the, uh, the, the, the noises coming, shall we say, from the experts and so forth, were, were a little more, bit more subdued and a little bit more, if you like, um, convinced that something special was happening here. And of course, uh, I'm soaked in science too, and I, I was really interested in, in, in actually looking at this. Uh, and then I wrote um, a little piece about this, which, which people found interesting, a kind of take, how could this have happened? If in fact it was a genuine thing, how could be speculated might have happened. Of course, it had to be a speculation. And um, people got quite interested in that, and I then took that a little bit further and so on. And um, uh, in the end, I, was, I think I was looking at something I, I, I thought I had to, to, to investigate uh, pretty thoroughly. And as I did that, uh, people got more and more interested in it. And somebody sent me from Italy a life-sized photograph of the shroud, and when I looked at that, I found the most amazing um, uh, um, uh, representations on it that actually, to me, convinced me it had to be one single person. And this, this I came out after several years of looking at this, um, trying to see who it might be, who else it might be, and so on, other than Jesus. And you know, of course, that they, they reserved a, for one, only one individual a particular kind of torture. And that was this kind of, you know... Um, um, thing they put on the head of the individual when they mocked him and called him the king of the Jews, the crown of thorns, the so-called crown of thorns, which in fact, actually when you look at the shroud in, in terms of its forensic outlay, uh, was in fact, and looks in fact a kind of a helmet of loosely woven uh, thorns which were just stuck on his head in, in order to kind of obviously um, um, uh, embarrass him and, and mock him even further. Mm -hmm. And of course, that is a very, very important thing, because that's a unique punishment for a, a, an individual and might, in fact, point uh, to the individual being Jesus Christ because it was so special, if you see what I'm trying to say. So the scourge marks, of course, in, uh, they call it tichili, which is uh, done by the flagrant with little balls of uh, metal at the end and spikes on it. It fits perfectly with the, 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 the kind of, you know, the wounds uh, seen in, in forensic examination and so forth. And... All in all, you've got to say at one point, now listen, what is your verdict? And when I looked at the entire scale, uh, uh, through skepticism, I have to say, I was out there to say that this is all another load of nonsense that the church is using to kind of you know, bring the faithful in, so to speak. Uh, I, I turned completely the other way, and I thought that this really has to be something absolutely wonderful and, and, and may well be, in fact, a lesson for us all in terms of why this individual came, why he did what he did, why he went into Jerusalem when he predicted that he was going to be killed, you know, and, and mangled in, 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 a, in a dreadful death. And, you know, that's when a con man runs. You, you get to the gates of Jerusalem and you're going to say, now, when I go in there, this is going to happen to me. If this guy was a liar and a cheat, he would have run the other way. He didn't. He went straight in there and he faced this this business and of course that to me was a very brave man and somebody who actually really believed in what he said and and, and so as i say the consensus turned in the favor of this being something extra, extraordinarily special and of course then you've got i i got interested in other subjects and so forth another enigmatic phenomenon ufos and so on and i began as i looked at all of these things to 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 see an amazing correlation between two things so unlikely to have that correlation. And that is the Shroud of Turin and whatever this UFO phenomenon might be, you know. And looking at it and looking at the text and so on, I looked for connections, if you like. I don't want to keep speaking in a monologue, you know, to see what I'm trying to say. But if you want to ask me a question, I will respond to it. What well, I'm saying is... You're, get, you're getting exactly where I wanted to go with it, Nigel, and that's how someone yeah, who yeah. spends so much time researching uh, gray yeah. aliens and the UFO phenomena ties it into the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, right. And, and so, you see, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this, and of course, from, from the title of my book, it was cause of kind of, a, for me, uh, a thermonuclear 
Holocaust, so to speak. <laughs> never, never expected to cause so much controversy and so on. But putting these things together and actually looking at how they tabulated some uh, verifiable um, um, uh, truth, I began to see that, hang on, here are some instances mentioned in the Bible here where you can get this individual, Jesus, to actually be connected, perhaps, with some device that in its own terms extraordinary for the time, and that is going up in the sky. And let me tell you why. There is a, a path, uh, you know, uh, Tim, in the... Uh, I hope I'm talking to Tim, am I? Yes, Tim and Matt. Yeah, yeah uh, Tim and Matt. There is an um, 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 exposition in, in the New Testament which says that this individual, Jeshua ben Joseph, Joseph, to give him his true Jewish name, Jesus Christ, to everyone else and Christians or whatever... This individual was taken, was taken by something or someone to a high place and shown the cities of the world. Now that's a very intriguing thing to me. It suddenly struck out when looking at all the various texts that I'd read from, you know, usually the texts were not the conventional things. I went to the things that the Christian codex threw out because I figured that they threw it out for a particular reason, and maybe that reason was that they carried more of the truth than, if you like, the shortened versions we get in, in, in the New Testaments and so on. But to go back to this, this point, uh, Tim, I was making about this uh, taken to a high place business. He was taken to this high place by an individual, obviously, who had the authority to do this to Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus was supposed to have had some following and so on, so he was a relatively important person at the time within his own flock, so to speak. But here's a, an individual taking him to a higher place, which shows a command over him, and then in that high place, this individual goes on to say, now look, you, if you fall down and worship me, I shall give you this, 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 and this. If you do this, I shall give you this, this, and this. And so there's a conditionality being placed on this individual, Jesus Christ, by someone who obviously had some, as I say, mastery over him. And I thought, this is very strange. Here's a high place. He says to him at one stage, you can see the cities of the world. Now, I have to say that if you go anywhere in Jerusalem <laughs> or Judea, there is no place high enough terrestrially where you can see the cities of the world. Mm -hmm. However, if you go vertically up in the air, perhaps 50 miles or whatever, if you look at Judea as a point on a globe, shall we say, centrally placed, with Judea in the middle, and you just kind of two-dimensionally flatten the sphere, and you go up, say, 50 miles up in the air, you will see all the cities of the known world of any consequence from there. Now, I thought to myself, the only way obviously this could be done was if he went up in some kind of craft. Now, as I say, I was at that time very skeptical about all this business about UFOs and so on. But it's little things like that that led me, connecting uh, up the dots, one, one, to, one to the other, that led me to come to the conclusion that we've got something really interesting here the words of retort from Jesus to this individual was, Get thee behind me, Satan, it is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Son of Man. He was, in fact, you know, ostracizing the chap who had control over him, control enough to get him to this high place or whatever, and said to him, Look, you are less than I am. And in investigating this business about UFOs, I came very early on to the conclusion that these UFO characters, or whatever they might be, were in fact robots, roboids, not actually living things as we would, we would talk of living uh, in the context of our, our life and so on. That these things actually had this, this man under control through a technological perspective, and that these things, as time went on and I, I looked into the UFO thing, I, I began to realize that this might, this technology came from some kind of probe device or whatever it is that might come, might have come into our universe, uh, for just as we send things out now to, to look at asteroids and so on, by, by some, shall we say, external, um, um, um a mechanism to our, our planet and so on. And it's interesting, and another, another little thing, Tim, um, it's interesting that this character, Satan, 
is interpreted in in the uh, the old text to be something that fell from the sky. There's another kind of you know little little uh, appetizer, so to speak, and little things like this mean a lot as you go along and accumulate these things, especially from the point of view of the negative argument. This is not so. You know, I, I didn't believe in this Buck Rogers nonsense and, and Star Wars and Star Trek and whatever, these, these, this storybook stuff. And I actually dismissed all of this when my child, my son asked me, Dad, are UFOs real? As I went along, I began to find something absolutely amazing that this UFO thing, not only was it real, and of course, you know that recently we had this wonderful collection of very brave men at the Washington Press Club sticking their necks out and saying, come on, fellas, admit this, they are here, something important is going on, not mm -hmm. just important, perhaps the most important thing in the world is going on. Why are you hiding this kind of thing? So in fact, you know, the Gospel of Luke uh, report, uh, reports Jesus to have uh, said that he beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. There's another indication. I'm not saying all those things in any kind of way in themselves is the proof of anything. Of course not. But I'm saying when you put that all together, you begin to see that there may well be a plausible correlation here where something as bizarre as UFOs, if you like, is connected to something as equally bizarre as this artifact called the Shard of Turin. And I've got come to the conclusion that not only is the Shard of Turin absolutely the burial plot of Jesus Christ, Christ without a shadow of a doubt, this is my opinion and only mine, shadow of a doubt, but it is probably the most important religious artifact ever in the history of humankind. And the most significant thing, as Andrew said, that points, and this is a great thing, that points to the capacity of human beings, this hidden capacity we might have, that 2,000 years ago, through an artifact left in this manner, through a mangling and a death, this wonderful person was trying to tell human beings and says to human beings now, when science can actually get to the bottom of this, in atomic terms, if you like, that we are extraordinarily special and have some fantastic power. And that if something like roboids or probes are coming from other, if you like, planets or whatever, to do their business here, we ought to guard ourselves. And I came to the conclusion that the entire sojourn of Jesus Christ, this is my own, my own interpretation, was in fact to warn mankind that these, this proposition that there are numerous accounts, for instance, in many of the texts of the Coptic Gnostic Library, in, in which Jesus explains to his apostles, you know, how exactly to deal with alien beings, should they face them, actually in, in, a, in a kind of language or lexicon, that might be directly interpreted as such and so on. And so the most notable of these, of course, is the, 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 what is given in the first um, uh, apocalypse of James, for instance, in the Nag Hammadi Codex. In this text, Jesus explains to the apostle James uh, how to cope with these beings who take away souls by theft. What better description of abduction can there be than that? And so you've got all these other, if you see what I mean, little things fitting into this, this picture. And when you, when you isolate all of the sensational stuff or whatever it is that, that you know, can be um, um, uh, look, looked at in an ambiguous type of way, and you put the relevant things together, you begin to see an absolutely amazing revelation here. And that revelation, I have to say, is particularly pertinent, I suppose, to Christians uh, at Easter time, is that we have here something human beings need to re-look at. Even though science is trying to take God away in the old sense of the, you know, the chappie in the Sistine Chapel with his finger pointed at Adam or whatever, the old anthropomorphic type of God, I think there is a principle here, a huge and powerful principle that points that to us as being something extraordinarily special. And that, to me, is the important thing, Tim. And we take cognizance of that fact alone, you know? And, and we are looking at basically what could be the science that proves God uh, in a way. And we'll talk about all that coming up uh, in the next half hour. We have to take a break for the news. Uh, but when we come back, we'll have about a half an hour left before the Bruins game will start in which we can explore more about the Shard of Turn with our guests, Nigel Kerner and Dr. Andrew Silverman. And if you have any questions or if you'd like to uh, join in the discussion at all, you can give us a call, 508 
1-877-996-1420. You can also email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com or jump into the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com as well. And uh, if you are new to the program and you've never heard of this heard this program before, please jump onto the site, click on the archives, and you can find every show that we've ever done. It's all there for you to stream online or for you to download. Uh, you can also get the latest episode uh, through Stitcher. Uh, the Stitcher app for your iPhone, for your uh, iPod, for your BlackBerry device, your Droid device, anything that you have that you can listen to a podcast on, you can find it on there. And I know, Matt Costa, you're going to update those archives soon, right? Yeah, there you go. All right, we'll be because <laughs> I finally put them up on the server. So, All right, we'll be right back with more talking about the Shroud of Turin. So stay tuned when we come back after the news here on Spooky South Coast. It's funny, isn't it? How everybody in town What's going to happen tomorrow is going to happen, and all your worry in the world isn't going to change that. Spooky South Coast is back. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz. We have about 20 minutes left until the Bruins in Montreal start here on WBSM, and then following that game will be the Red Sox and the Anaheim, I'm sorry, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. I'm never going to get used to that name. But uh, so a full night of sports coming up after we finish our little show here, talking about the Shroud of Turin. And if you like what we do and you want to check us out, we're usually here Saturday nights from 10 to midnight. Uh, and every show that we've ever done is archived uh, on SpookySouthCoast.com. And you can also get our podcasts through iTunes and wherever else you get podcasts. And Spooky TV is our video feed that comes to you each week from the studio during the program. And uh, all of those that we've done the last oh, four or five months, however long we've been doing that for, they're all archived. Actually, it's probably been almost a year now. Yeah. They're all uh, archived on Ustream.com. Just go to Ustream.com and type in Spooky South Coast, and you'll find uh, all of our video portions of the program. And uh, we are talking, like I said, about the Shroud of Turin with our guests, Nigel Kerner and Dr. Andrew Silverman. And uh, Dr. Silverman, one of the questions that I actually got off the air during the break uh, has to do with the fire that occurred uh, that the Shroud was involved with and some of the carbon dating associated with that and also whether or not it will be approved. I know scientists have asked for permission to test it once again, and if you've heard anything on that front. Well, I know that, yes, scientists have asked for it to be tested again, and that uh, as as we talk at, at the moment, the church hasn't given permission for any of the samples to be released from the, from the cloth. I know that there is some work being done on the possibility of whether contamination by, as a result of the fire, would have affected the carbon dating. Preliminary reports that, that I've heard so far don't suggest that, that it would have been to to any large extent, um, but uh, there were, you see, the thing is, after the fire, there were patches sewn in, but those patches are quite clearly uh, patches that have been sewn in afterwards, whereas the one in the corner that, that we think is is a, a reweave of a patch that was sewn in later, that one has been sort of camouflaged into it with uh, dye, with the mordant that was put onto it to make it the, the same color. And this is what uh, Raymond Rogers from Los Alamos found when he did his study of the of the cloth from near the carbon dating area. That on part of it you do get this this bits that have been added, which you don't find on the rest of the shroud because it hasn't got it doesn't have pigment, it doesn't have paint, it doesn't have anything that that carries that carries paint except tiny little minuscule traces, most of them away from the image, That because what used to happen was people used to make paintings of it, of the shroud, and then to, because they thought it would bless those paintings if they placed it on the cloth. A lot of them we were actually touched onto the cloth, but if you look microscopically at the image, it's not composed of, of paint or pigment in any way. Well, one of the things that I find uh, the most interesting about the shroud is whether or not it has been you know, it's definitively proven that it is the image of Jesus. It has taken on that type of aura around it where people feel that if they're in the presence of it, that it has healing powers, that it has 
some kind of mystical connection that when you are able to view it, and they do allow it from time to time to be publicly viewed. I know there's replicas that are out there too, but they do bring it out every once in a while. It, it seems like people have attached uh, relic status to it already. Well, yes, but you see, the thing is, for me, that's not what it means. That's not what it's about. For me, if you look at what Jesus actually taught, he always said when anyone was healed after being in his presence, your faith has made you whole. He never said, I've made you whole. And, you know, these things that you see me do, greater than these can you do. So I don't think he, I mean, obviously I'm not in a position to talk on his behalf, but just guessing and extrapolating from what, from what he said. I, I wouldn't have thought that um, that he would want people to worship it or, or to worship him, but to recognize the size and potential of themselves and therefore of all their fellow human beings, whatever nationality, race, religion they have. Just because they're human, they have the same potential that he did, and he showed that his potential was to be able to completely conquer death and that you know this was a dead body that shone brighter than the sun. So then in that sense, then, the shroud should be just a, a reaffirmation of people's faith. Well, I, I, you see, um, the, the word faith is, is an interesting one. I would, I would suggest that this is something that we can understand with, with reason. You don't need to believe it because anyone tells you. Just te- look at it and test it out for yourselves. Consider the evidence and see if it might not point to a big realization about how special you are as a human being. You know, actually, this is something Nigel once pointed out to me when I was a kid. You look up at the sky and you see all those millions and millions of, of stars out there. All of those, however many billions of light years away, they all exist in your mind's eye, in your comprehension, in your perception. Now, anything physical, no matter how big it is, a planet, a star, a galaxy, it doesn't have a mind. It can't do that. We have, If we have free will and we all live our lives as though we do, whether we notionally believe we do or not, we have the power to control destiny to some extent to determine the future. A black hole can't do that. It's, it's, it's deterministic. Things that are physical, they follow physical laws. Free will means we have something that goes from before the beginning of the universe, if you like. We have something that's so immense and huge as human beings, all of us and everyone, whatever they say, wherever they come from. But I think, you know, Jesus was in awe of that in, in everyone, and that's why he said, if it's not written, you are God. He wasn't saying, worship me, I'm a God. He's saying, look at what potential each of you have and treasure each other. As a medical doctor, uh, Andrew, have you ever seen uh, upon someone's death or even after death, has there ever been a recordable energy burst, something similar to what would have been needed to have uh, burned this image into the shroud? No, I've, I've never heard of anything, any example of it throughout history other than the, the Turin Shroud itself. And interestingly, uh, so a scientist based in, in, in Massachusetts, actually, a, a medical doctor who's written books, uh, Gilbert Lavoie, um, as a forensic study of the Shroud, he's found that actually, the, judging by the image of the man, he would have actually, when the image formed, that dead body was vertical because the back of the, the buttocks, the calves, the top of the shoulders, they're not compressed, and the hair is down on the shoulders. It's not behind him as it would have been if he's laid out on the slab. And yet he wasn't standing, because if you look at the feet, they're actually pointing down, like he's actually suspended above the, above the ground, which sounds bizarre, but remember, this is a dead body that shone brighter than the sun. And so, you know, to hear something strange about it isn't, isn't that surprising, but... That's what actually the physical evidence suggests, that a dead body of a man rose up vertically upright, and for a moment it shone bright in the sun. And as I say, many scientists, whatever their background and however skeptical they started off, now believe that this is an actual photographic imprint of the resurrection on the cloth. My question, my only question is, is how did he get out of the shroud? I mean, it's a, it sounds to me like you've, you've got me convinced that this is what happened. That, uh, that it, it seems like the evidence does point to exactly what you said. Could I jump in a little bit? Absolutely. Something? Now, if I'm not mistaken, when they wrapped the, they didn't wrap the body in those times until so many days after because they didn't know if the person was truly dead. After so many days, this is why they came back to check the body, is if he was truly dead, then they finished, would, would wrap him up. Because if he wasn't dead, 
you know, and been wrapped up, he wouldn't have been able to get out. No, the, the, the forensic evidence does confirm that, that he was actually dead at the moment that he was put in the... If you, if you read Dr. Lavoie's books, you'll see there's lots and lots of evidence that he was actually dead at the time that the, that the bloodstains were formed on the cloth. And actually, the, the, the Jewish tradition was that they would come a few days later to anoint the body and, and, and so on. But it, it wasn't to, um, to check that he was dead. Well, I didn't say that he wasn't dead, but in a lot of cases, they did leave it so, because their medicine back then wasn't the best. That's like, um, and you're right, they would go back and anoint the body. A lot of the skeptics argued that the impressions would have been made uh, skewed and, and stuff because they wrapped, they wrapped the body and they wrapped the body until well, until they were well ready to bury, bury it for, uh, well, am I not mistaken? Well, no, it, it would have been, it would have been wrapped at the, at the time, but the point is that it seems that when the actual blood stains were formed, the, the cloth was wrapped around his body and then when the image formed, you can see that the, the cloth was actually taut. It was actually flat. So it actually, whatever process happened, and we can only speculate about it, he was actually, he was actually upright and the, the cloth was in front of him and, and behind him and was, was flat two-dimensional. Because you can see that the, that the blood stains that would have come from the, from the face are superimposed on where the, where the hair would have been. And again, this is based on, on experimental studies that uh, Dr. Lavoie did. Well, I was going to ask uh, if there were any other shrouds that were discovered that would have a similar image burned into them, but I'm guessing they probably didn't go back and check too many other people's tombs and shrouds anyway. There's nothing, anything like it ever found throughout history, and it's not actually burnt, um, but it's a, a, just a surface change in the in the fibrils of the of the cloth. Technically speaking, it's a, it's a change in the structure of the cellulose at the microscopic level on only those surface fibrils. So it's more of like an, an imprint of the very slightest sense. It, it, it's very faint when you actually... I've seen it twice. It, it, it looks faint at first, but if you take a photographic negative of it, you can see it becomes much clearer, which would fit with the notion that it was formed by a burst of radiant energy from the body of the man. Was there any sign uh, when, when you saw it, when you looked at it, was there anything about it that struck you as not driving with what has been historically described? I mean, was there anything about it that seemed off? I know that a lot of the controversy surrounding it uh, has to do with how many people have handled it through history. Well, a lot of people will have handled it through history, but there's nothing else like it in history, nothing else. It was an image, a photographic negative image with distance-coded information. So um, however it happened, it's something that we can't replicate, even with 21st century technology. People have tried to make similar things, but they don't. They always fall down on one of the basic things. Either they try and do it with paint, and then you see the paint soaks through, the fibers get matted together. Mm -hmm. you, you just can't get a, um, a surface phenomenon effect. With, in photographic negative, with all that anatomical detail, with distance-coded information, with uh, just a, a chemical change in the a pixelated chemical change in the surface fibers of the cloth, it just no one's been able to do anything like it. Even with people say Leonardo made it great as, as much as I admire his work, this, the shroud, as the shroud was was known to have been exhibited at least a hundred years before Leonardo was born, so. He would have had to have been a, a time traveler as well, as well as, uh, you know, the best forger that the world has ever known. And we, in 21st century technology, we still can't make anything like it. Well, it's interesting that uh, when you're talking about something that what might be one of the most controversial, you know, pieces of, of fabric in, in the entire history of the world, that uh, it would pass through so many hands uh, through so many years and, and still maintain its integrity after all this time. I mean, there's other you know, historical relics from that time that just didn't survive with the kind of uh, ability that, it, that this has. It makes me wonder if it does have almost that supernatural protection over it. Well, I, I wouldn't know about that. Uh, there, are, there are other first century cloths that, have, that are preserved and have been still kept and even things that, that are older than that, of course, um, in, in archaeology. So it's not, it's not unique in, that, in those terms that it survived all this time. Well, 
I have to say that uh, we are coming up toward the end of the show here. But uh, and Nigel, we we mentioned before the idea of these UFOs being involved with this. Uh, do you think in in your research into this at all that uh, have they played any part in the creation of the shroud itself, the gray aliens? Yeah, I yeah. The, the, the point here, Tim, is I think that what this individual Jesus Christ came to say to us was there is coming a time where we will be changed into some kind of transhuman type of being. Man shall walk as machine. And that there is something within all of us that is so precious that this must never be allowed to happen. And that science will just go headlong and replace all our parts in the, in, in, in the interest of some bionic future, if you like. And that this very thing is what he came here to warn us and try to prevent. And, of course, the UFO connection, bizarre though it sounds, I believe stands uh, in as much as it is warning us, and look at what, what we're seeing these days with all these strange lights going on uh, around the world, and, and, and of course you've got the, um, uh, the testaments of um, uh, the astronauts and so on, that they've actually seen these things, and many, many people, thousands of pilot reports and so on, that these things are here. I believe that something significant, very, very significant, is going to happen to mankind, and that significance points, in a sense, very strongly to... And, of course, Andrew goes on the technical sides of, of the shroud and so on. I mean, I would take this into the territory where a great warning was given 2,000 years ago, which stands relevant absolutely now at this kind of moment in time. And that this relevance is going to make sure that uh, we as a, uh, a natural living force maintain that incredible thing, that ancestry that goes back right to the beginning of the universe, if you like, in, in, a, in a line, so to speak, in a uh, connected line, mom, dad, granddad, and so on, right the way back, that we have a preciousness in our physical livingness, so to speak. And I think Jesus was trying to say to us, keep that. Do not let any kind of uh, plasticated, synthetic thing come into you, because there's something to do with that connection that allows you the scope to live forever if you see what I'm trying to say, to carry on and come back, to carry on and come back. And I believe that these, these UFOs or whatever it is are here to try to piggyback on that particular capacity of, of a human being to actually maintain that wonderful thing. That's why they've persisted here for so long through the centuries and so on. And so for me, for me that is, is, is very, it's very important that uh, we see that there is maybe a connection here as significant as a wonderful evidence we have from this piece of cloth that uh, an actual resurrection uh, took place. And, and, and in as much as that is so, I think it's a very, very exciting and, and, and a very interesting thing for the future. All right. Well, Nigel's website is nigelkerner.com, and it's linked up on spookysouthcoast.com. And, uh, Dr. Uh, Andrew, do you have a website as well? Um, yes, I do. It's called lightoftheshroud.com. All right, and I'm sure that Chris has that linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com as well, so be sure to check those out. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us here on the eve of Easter, and uh, what perfect timing to talk about the Shroud of Turin, and, and thank you for joining us, and thank you for the research. All right, thank you very much. Thank right. you very much, Tim. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Nigel Kerner and Dr. Andrew Silverman. And uh, if you want to explore more, Light of the Shroud is the website where there's a lot of information. And uh, on nigelkerner.com, you can also get his books, uh, including the new one, Gray Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls, which we discussed a few months ago here on Spooky South Coast. But it's definitely interesting when we're talking about, as I said, and as Chris wrote on the website, one of the most controversial pieces of cloth in, in human history, almost as controversial as the Spooky South Coast T-shirts. Definitely. I would say the most controversial piece of cloth would be the spooky South Coast thongs that never happened. <laughs> People still ask about those to this day. They're listening to the archives and they're saying, whatever happened to those? Amazing how we can go from the image of Jesus Christ, many people's Lord and Savior, to a thong with Moniz's face in it. <laughs> Only on this show could we go from such great heights to such low depths in the matter of one sentence. Well, we'll be back next week. I'm going to assume at our regular time, uh, there's the Red Sox will allow us to be. Uh, I guess everything will have to depend on what happens with the Bruins, and, of course, the Celtic schedule will affect whether or not I'll be here. 
but Matt Moniz is ready to step in the big chair if need be, and Chris Balzano is ready to come in and pinch hit as well if need be. So uh, they'll be programs no matter what. It's just a matter of when they're going to happen. So stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com for all that information. And if you happen to miss a program, you know the archives will be up on SpookySouthCoast.com at some point. We're trying to be good about that. We, we I fell a couple weeks behind, but it's a busy busy time for me. And uh, also, if you want to check out the interview with Chris Balzano on Paratopia from last night, just go to Paratopia.net and you can get that show. They give you uh, about the first 35 minutes free. And then it's $1.25, I believe, to download the rest of it. And if you want to hear my interview with Darkness uh, on the Edge of Town Radio, just go to darknessradio.com, and you can get their archives there. And, uh, and Dave had a great idea uh, during that interview, Dave Schrader, the host of that show, where people can listen to his show Monday through Friday and then join us here on Spooky South Coast on Saturday nights, and we highly recommend that as well. And we're actually going to have uh, the, the Darkness crew on an upcoming episode of Spooky South Coast at some point, too, and we'll talk with them about their program and things out their way and Dave's book as well. So we've got lots of shows planned, so little time to get them done. Oh, and don't forget, right, May 21st, right, the, the world's going to end. So don't forget that. May 21st of this year, the world's going to end. So well, that's a Saturday night. So you're going to want to tune in that night. I'm going to assume that we'll be here. I don't know exactly what time the rapture is scheduled to take place. But I'm going to assume that we'll be here that night. So I don't know. If it's not, maybe we can program the computer to run a rerun or something. But we'll be back next week, regular time, 10 p.m. So until then, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, for Chris Balzano, and for... Jesus himself, because happy Easter, everybody. We want you all to stay spectacular. W-